Remain standing for the reading of the Word of God, Psalm 130 in your pew Bibles, page 614, Psalm 130. Again, page 614, pew Bibles. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen and amen. And then Isaiah chapter 61 and verses 1 to 3. You imagine that uh, you were in Nazareth. Uh, this one who was brought up there is now a, a rabbi, and he is going to minister the word of God. He, he opens up a portion of scripture, and his sermon says, this day the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And here's what he reads. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, that's the Messiah, to bring good news to the poor. For he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Amen. Amen. And then the New Testament reading as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, so-called. It was named by St. Augustine. Matthew chapter 5, and you're at page 962, or Matthew chapter, should be Matthew 5, 1 to 5, page 962. Matthew chapter 5, and verses 1, 1 through 4. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we'll do the next two as well. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which we say together, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. Lord, please take what we've sung and engraft it into us as your word is preached today. We pray through the word made flesh, Jesus, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And I think you are probably going to want to turn to page uh, 10. 
comes, whatever it is, with well, the notes, whatever that is, 11, I guess it is. Yeah, 10. So, we come to the Sermon on the Mount, as it has been called in Luke. It's on a plane, probably the same message is given in, in different locations in a different way, uh, but the Sermon on the Mount, as it's called. And please note uh, that while there's crowds that have listened to Jesus, the disciples are there at Jesus' feet. It is followers of the Lord Jesus, those who have linked the train of their lives with his by faith, who are there listening. And, and so the Sermon on the Mount has been called various things. The lifestyle of the kingdom is, is a great phrase for it. I really prefer Christian counterculture, uh, but the fact of the matter is that's, that this is a sermon uh, about the kingdom of God, as you're going to learn more today. Or if you want to look at it this way, what are we supposed to be in the world? What are we supposed to look like as the Lord's people? What are we supposed to act like as the Lord's people? Um, what are we supposed to be as the Lord's people? Probably the most important question. So today, we're going to begin, and I'll give you the reason for this in a moment, we're going to begin with what I'm calling being attitudes. The be attitudes are being attitudes. We'll look at why that's the case and um, what does that mean? What, what, what does it mean, the being attitudes? And then, uh, blessed, what does that mean? And, and in both cases, there have been misunderstandings of what these mean, and as I mentioned last week, part of going through this is to give a right understanding of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And then in, in the third place, an example and the example is the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, Why being attitudes? And let me begin with a, um, or a statement of, of repentance or penance or, or whatever. Um, years ago in Franklin Square, I preached on the Sermon on the Mount. It was one of the early series that I did in Franklin Square. And then over the years, as I reflected, especially in the Beatitudes, I um, wasn't real happy with the way I, I dealt with that. I'll give you a little bit of the reason in a moment. And uh, I've, I've looked forward to the opportunity to deal with, especially the Beatitudes, uh, differently. Hopefully this will register some more maturity on my part and be helpful to you. But it's part of the reason I resolved that if I had the other opportunity to deal with the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, I would call them the being attitudes. And why is that? The Sermon on the Mount, brothers and sisters, is not primarily about what you do. Now, it does speak about what we do, but it's not primarily about what you do. It's about what you are, okay? It's about your being. Now, let me give you some examples. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount does deal with what you do at points. Uh, Matthew 5 and verse 19, doing and teaching. Well, that's clearly doing. Matthew 5, 31, you're not supposed to seek divorce when you're married. Well, that's an action. Uh, Matthew 7 and verse 7, we're to ask, and that's clearly an action. You do that. Matthew 7 and verse 13, you enter the kingdom. You do that. Matthew 7 and verse 23, workers of lawlessness. So clearly there's action that's involved, and I'm not taking any of that away. I would suggest, though, 
that even these grow out of what you are. I think you can make the case as you go through the Sermon on the Mount uh, that even these things grow out of what you are. What are you according to the Sermon on the Mount? Well, you're salt and light. You don't do anything to become salt and light. You're either salt or you're not, or you're light or you're not. Okay, so that's being. Matthew 5, 43, you are to love your enemies. Now, love is an action, but love is, first of all, an attitude of the heart in which you give yourself for the good of others, beginning with your own heart going out to them. Matthew 5 and verse 45, evil, good, just, unjust. Yeah, these are things you do, but Jesus speaks of us as being good or being evil or being just or being unjust. Matthew 5:48 be perfect all right and so what you are in Matthew 6:21 speaks about the principles of the treasure and the heart and Jesus gets to the heart of the matter there where he says where your treasures are there your heart will be also and he's concerned with the heart and what we are now why why is that important and this will get to one of the reasons why over the years I've reflected with some sorrow about the way I first approached the Sermon on the Mount. Why is this so important? The Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. People will say, well, Jesus goes to the Mount, Moses went to the Mount, Mount Jesus, Mo, Jesus, or Moses gave the law, Jesus is giving the law of the new covenant. I don't think that's particularly helpful. Um, now, it's true that even as the law convicts us and draws us to Christ. You go through the Ten Commandments, we see all the areas we failed, and we run to Christ for forgiveness. Well, it's true, the Sermon on the Mount will do the same thing. All you have, a man has to do, in particular, is read that we're not supposed to lust after a woman, and we're convicted and we come to Christ for forgiveness. Or for all of us, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, that'll really drive you to the Lord Jesus, who alone is perfect. See, the Sermon on the Mount does that. Don't think that's the primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, for others, the Sermon on the Mount is a code of morality. If we could just obey the Sermon on the Mount, there wouldn't be the war in the Middle East that there is right now. And that's not an uncommon viewpoint among people as they look at the Sermon on the Mount, that's just the way we need to be. Here's the problem. Those things are impossible for unrenewed nature. Uh, Jeremiah talks about the Ethiopian black person not being able to change the color of his skin, or the leopard not being able to change his spots. And he says in so many words, in the same way you cannot do good who are accustomed to do evil. And Jesus will even talk about bringing forth good fruit out of a tree that's made good. And, and so you can't take the Sermon on the Mount and expect people who are not, quite frankly, disciples of Christ to do these things. So, so, so that's a wrong view of the Sermon on the Mount. What's the right view? It is an outworking of Christ's own heart and life in you. Now, this Lord that the disciples are following is really opening up his own heart, his own lifestyle of the kingdom, his own Christ counterculture. 
he's opening that up, and his disciples who follow him are to have that same kind of outworking in their lives. Now, let me, let me give you one of many, many examples in the New Testament. Look, and I'll use your pew Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 to 19. Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 through 19, and that's, that's page 1160 and 1161 in your pew Bibles. Now, this, it, frankly, in, in all of Paul's letters, um, and for that matter, Peter's letters too, you, you, you can get similar things, okay? But, but listen, and, and this, is, this is a, wow, just be in awe of this statement. After Paul lays out the glory of the gospel, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, Ephesians 3.14, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, right, what you are, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know what? The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you, this is, wow, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Uh, folks, mere mortals, unaided by the Holy Spirit, they don't come up with things like this. I mean, this would be a, a statement of unadulterated braggadocio if it were not the Holy Spirit working through someone to say that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what the gospel does to you. It, it makes you a new creature in Christ, and you are filled, as it says here, with all the fullness of God. Now, how does that come? Well, we talk about the new birth, um, or, or being born from above. And new birth isn't something that you do either. Nicodemus is the one who blew it. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, Nicodemus, to this, to this uh, person who was very learned in the law, you must be born again. And Nicodemus blows it. He says, how can I do this? How, how, how can I go back into my mother's womb when I'm already old? And, and Jesus, in so many words, says, Nicodemus, you don't get it. When, when a child is conceived, that child is conceived by God himself in, in the parents, in the, in the, in the mother's womb. And, and the same thing with the new birth. Heaven, as it were, comes down and forms a new creature. That's, that's what new birth is, or if you will, gives a, a new heart to that person. And, and that's the new covenant, that, that you might have a new heart. What heart is that? And why, why is that the mark of the new covenant the new covenant is the new covenant because Christ has come. Well, Christ's whole being, that we know of represented by the heart, that becomes ours in the new birth. It's as if, it's as if you have had a transplant of Christ's own heart to us. And 
in your Christian life, if you're a follower of Christ, you keep close to Christ's heart as it's made known in the scriptures, right? All the scriptures speak to us of Christ. Now, now let me use an illustration that I find helpful for myself. Um, a pacemaker. Uh, I don't have one. Well, you've actually had natural pacemaker, but I don't have an artificial one. But let's think about the artificial one for a minute, which is really a computer chip, and it's got electrodes, and it's put in one of your ventricles in your heart, and it, it, and it, it sends messages to the heart. Uh, the, the heart is not beating properly. The heart is slowing down, whatever the, the difficulty with the heart. And it sends messages to the pacemaker. And the pacemaker takes those messages from the heart and sends them to some kind of a computer thing that also sends a response back to the heart about how things are to change. And for my simple mind, that's a simple way to look at reading the scriptures. The reading the scriptures is having a pacemaker. And so I, I am, my heart becomes dull and it becomes hardened. And yours does too. We all deal with this. We are faced with all of the irregularities of the world, and it's so easy to lose the heart of mercy and grace. The scriptures, a pacemaker, and they tell the heart, no, 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 you need to be filled more with the mercy and the grace of the lowly Christ. Or you become dull towards sin. It just doesn't affect you the way it should, and you're, you're numb to it. And, and the Word of God, the pacemaker, uh, registers as it's registering your heart, tells your mind, so to speak, um, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is warfare, and you've got to get back into the war. And there's these messages that come from your heart that never really beats the way it should, even when it's a new heart to the pacemaker, which is the Word of God, and, and, and the heart sends signals as you're reading the Word, hey, these things need to change. The message goes to your mind, as it were, and your mind says, no, these things, repentance, or renewed faith, believing the promises, whatever it would be, okay? But if you think of, if you think of the new heart that the Lord gives you, and a pacemaker, the Word of God, as the way to keep that heart beating the way it should, that will help you, and it will help you grasp the Beatitudes. Because as you go through the Beatitudes, as you go through the Sermon on the Mount, wow, <laughs> there's all kinds of things to say, oh boy, my heart needs a lot of work. And, and, and the messages are sent through the Sermon on the Mount and other scriptures. They are, they are sent from the heart through the pacemaker to your mind, and you begin to change. Okay, so so that's, that's, that's the idea of what I'm getting at by the, by the being attitudes here. They really deal with your heart. And remember, true Christianity, brothers and sisters, it's not first rules and regulations. Now we have those, okay? We have house rules so we can function as a church and we have, we have the commandments of God. I'm not taking any of that away. But it's first of all a relationship with Christ as your Lord. <coughs> It's a marriage relationship. And can you imagine a husband if every day he said to his wife, Now, here's 15 things I expect you to do for me today, and if you don't, you're really in the doghouse. I don't think that marriage is going to go very well. 
The, the husband and the wife love one another. They are communicating with one another. The wife knows the husband needs these things, and the husband, the wife, needs things too. And, and you, you serve one another in a relationship of love. And, and that's, it doesn't do away with law, but it puts it in a different context, okay? It's not, it's not a lash, it's love. So anyway, so that's why we call them the being attitudes. And these are about, first of all, what you are. Okay, now... Let's look at this word blessed. We finally, we get, we get to the, the Sermon on the Mount and, and the word that predominates here in these eight of the Beatitudes. Um, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek and so on. Now, here again, how do you rightly understand the Sermon on the Mount and, and not? Please don't substitute the word happy for blessed. This is the big thing now among evangelicals. And, and, and what, the, what the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes are is the way to really be happy. I don't know about you, but there's a resounding thud for me when I read, happy are those who mourn. It, it, it doesn't make sense. And that becomes a stumbling block in our culture. Really? You've lost your wife, you've lost your mother, you've lost your father, and you're happy about it? Folks, that's not godly, that's weird, okay? So, so, so the word blessed is not happy, which is more of subjective and depending on circumstances. Blessed is, I'm walking under the smile of God. Amen. Wow, Amen. that's radical. I am walking under the smile of God. And that's the idea that's in view here. And you see it. See, Jesus, Jesus was dealing with religious leaders and the Jewish laity, so to speak. And they really had lost a lot of the meaning of the Old Testament. And Jesus is blowing away the clouds. Oh, blessed, blessed is the man, someone who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed, walking under the smile of God. Blessed is he whose sins are forgiven, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's, a, that's your walking under the smile of God, because in his Son whom he has freely given, you are forgiven. That's what the gospel's about. And God revels, he smiles at the fact that you're walking as a repentant sinner and as a forgiven sinner. So, so when you think about blessedness that way, as walking in the smile of God, that transforms everything. Now, you, you see how even this this convicts you, okay? Um, blessed is he whose sins are forgiven, and you, and you cherish sin. You, you don't want to confess sin to others or to the Lord. Well, that will certainly convict you and draw you to Christ, but the point is you're blessed when you do what God says. Now, I need to mention this. To be blessed is the opposite of being cursed. And so the Lord says to Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless. 
And, and please, and I want to be careful how I say this, please do not equate modern Israel with the children of Abraham. Please don't do that. It doesn't mean we should not pray for, for justice and for peace in that area. We should. Uh, but but the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a state that is not friendly to the God of Abraham. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The point is, God says to Abraham, a man of faith, Whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And this is how embedded this was in the Israeli consciousness, in the Old Testament consciousness. In Deuteronomy 28, it's a long chapter, 14 verses. Blessed are you when, blessed are you when, blessed are you when, blessed are you when, blessed are you when. And apparently uh, the, the, the Israelites were on, were on two mountains and they would say this, and they would, they would speak across the valley to one another. And then the larger part of it is cursed are, cursed are, cursed are, cursed are. And so when you think of blessed, I've got to let you know there is an opposite, which means cursed. And what's the difference? Blessed ones hide themselves in the blessed one. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's blessed, and you hide yourself in him. And that's really, really important, folks. See, this is how serious the Beatitudes are. If the blessed things that are here are not yours, then you're following a mirage. You're following things that will never, ever really satisfy you. In fact, they'll, ends up, they'll end up being your curses. So, so, so let, don't take that word lightly. It's a serious word. Blessed are, are those, okay? Now, that finally brings us to an example, which is in verse 3, and this is all we're going to look at. I hope it will set an example for the others. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me tell you about my pacemaker, okay? As I'm going through these again, I'm not the most original guy in the world, and so I have people that the Lord uses as my pacemakers. Uh, the lead ones are Sinclair Ferguson and John R. Stott and also D.A. Carson in their outstanding commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount. And so as I'm working through the text and reading their material, those are the pacemakers that are affecting me and uh, so that I can preach to you, not just from the head, but from the heart. And that's an example of how you do that. But anyway, let, let's look at this example in verse 3. And when you have a list in the Greek, and particularly in the Greek language, in a list, the first item is usually the most important. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, right? And so love is, of all of the fruit, it's, it's the one that's the umbrella category, as I put it. Believe and be baptized is kind of a list. Belief is the primary thing. So, so anyway, the, 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 this one here is the umbrella category. In a real sense, it, it's, it's, I'd say, the most important, but it, it takes up all of the others. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't want to weary you <laughs> with not but... But again, we want, we want to understand things properly here. Poor in spirit is not speaking first, if at all, about finances. Now, I know Luke says, blessed are the poor, but, but the old concept of the poor in the Old Testament, as you'll see, has really nothing whatsoever to do with your finances. I mean, there are people who are 
poor financially, but they're not poor in spirit. They can be very proud even in their poverty. And there are rich people, and they may be poor in spirit. Now, in fairness, uh, poverty financially may be a conduit to poverty of spirit, and uh, riches may be a conduit to the opposite, but this is not first speaking financially uh, here. And also, it's not speaking first temperamentally. Now, what do I mean by that? There are some people who are constitutionally melancholy. They, they're, they're kind of always on the border of some kind of depression. The music they know is almost always in minor key. <laughs> That's the idea of someone who is melancholy. Or, or someone who is, is introverted. They, they, they focus on self and they see their weaknesses and their failures. That's the point. They focus on self. That's not what poor in spirit is. It may be a conduit to that, but temperament is not what is first here. It is about what, how the Lord makes us when he makes us new. What then does poverty of spirit mean? It builds on the Old Testament. Let's look at two texts with your pew Bible. Psalm 34 and verse 6. And for those of you beset by fear, Psalm 34 is uh, one that you want to memorize. Uh, Psalm 34, uh, verse 4, and this is page 547. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. It's interesting, he doesn't say sins. He does that too, but he delivers us from our fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now watch. This poor man cried. There's nothing about finances. He's afraid. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The poor here is, is, what is, what does poor mean? Weak, helpless, totally dependent upon God. It's interesting, this morning I was, I was listening to some of the reports from the Gaza area. In Gaza, I hope you realize, that Gaza is this long strip. It's a very heavily populated area. We have the Mediterranean Sea to the west, and you have Israel to the east, and you have Egypt to the south. And it's quite a long strip of, uh, on, on the Mediterranean. And there were people who were in some part of Gaza. That's really scary because the, 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 the Hamas is attacking Israel. Israel's retaliating, and, and bombs are going off. I think in every one of the, in each of the people interviewed, and I would assume that most of them, if not all of them, were Jews, they said, we felt ourselves helpless and we were totally dependent upon God. I have to admit, I found that very refreshing to hear. I'm not taking away their plight at all. But, and this is not saying all these people had saving faith. That's not the point. But that's the idea. They're helpless. They're in danger. Their lives are on the line. They don't have any ability in themselves, and they don't have any claim where they can raise their hand and say, hey, Hamas, 
Hey, Israel, you got to lay off the bombing because I'm here. Uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. They're, they have no merit in that regard at all. And that's, that's what poor means. And then one other text in Isaiah 41 in verses 17 and 18. Isaiah 41 in verses 17 and 18. This will give you a little more of the kingdom of heaven aspect of it too in, in imagery. 40, Isaiah 41 in verses 17 and, and 18. That's page 714 in your pew Bibles. When the poor and needy seek water, and there's none. That doesn't say whether they're wealthy or not. The fact of the matter is they're thirsty and they're dying of thirst. And their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the Lord, I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will, and notice the language, I will, I will, I will. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because maybe theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. No, 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 no. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I love the fact that we have a definite God. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. And to those who are dying of thirst. The Lord says, I'll give you the water that you need. Okay, and he calls them the poor here. And Jesus' first recorded sermon is from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. And the poor in spirit. That's why, again, this is a, an example first in the list in praying. Now, Read commentators, and they'll, they have all kinds of ways, they're good ways, of describing what, what poverty of spirit is. Let, let me give you Pastor Shishko's very blunt, what poverty of spirit is. One, it is being struck with the reality of the world. It, honesty is in all this, folks. Uh, at the end of the day, Christianity is honesty with the world, honesty with yourself, honesty with God, honesty with Christ. Be poor in spirit is to be struck with the reality of the good, of the, of the, of the, of the world. It's a good world. God made things wonderful, but it's fallen. And that fallenness is on every page. If you still read a newspaper or a magazine, it's on every page, it's in every news headline. The world is good, but it is fallen. It is, if you will, bankrupt. They don't have temporary investments that seem good, but ultimately bankrupt. And the language of Isaiah, it's full of dust. Uh, there isn't the justice you want. There isn't the love that you want. There's not the utopia that you're looking for. Being poor in spirit is just being really honest with the world. Are you? Are you honest with the world? Number two, being poor in spirit is being struck 
with the reality of your neighbor. So what do you mean by that? Are you struck with the bankruptcy of your neighbors? An example. I, um, if we had a dog and I walked it, I'd meet more of my neighbors. And Rosaria Butterfield, among others, says that's a great way of evangelizing. But I'm not going to get a dog so I can meet my neighbors. That's a whole other story. But when I'm out, there are people walking their dogs. And the other day, I met a lady. I'd not seen her before. And uh, she was walking her dog. And um, I won't give the names because this is recorded. And I said, I've gotten to know her. And they said, do we talk about you know, start the weather, what it was? And, and, uh, and, and I, I said, yeah, well, the rain we're getting now is not like we got a couple of weeks ago. Oh, she says, well, we, we didn't get that rain. We were in Hawaii. And of course, I was thrilled she was yeah. in Hawaii. She wasn't in the area that was burned out. But she wanted to let me know that, that she and her husband had had the privilege of being in Hawaii. And I think that's wonderful. Um, I'm not a big Hawaii fan, but, that's, but she enjoyed it. So that was good. And then as we talked a little bit more, with some sadness, she said, my husband and I are retired now. Our children are making more money than we did at their ages. And so really about all we have to do now is travel. That's the real world, folks. It ends up with zero. If that's all you live for, nothing wrong with the travel. But if that's what you live for, and that's what the world does, again, it's mirages, okay? So you're struck with the reality of your neighbor, if you want, your neighbor outside of Christ, your neighborhood, whatever. Are you struck with that? Are you honest about it? And being poor in spirit, as you know what the third one's going to be, you're struck with the reality of yourself. I'm weak, I'm helpless, I'm totally dependent upon God, I don't control my world, he does. Are you honest with that? It's probably the first mark of new birth. You get honest with yourself and with your world and with God. And you see yourself as the prodigal son. I'm in a far country, and what I'm eating is pretty miserable, gruel. But I've got the opportunity to rise and go to the house of my father. That's, that's being honest with yourself, I hope. Uh, or, or Jesus' language of a child. Unless you have the faith of a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? A child is totally dependent. That's why the abuse of a child, the, the, any kind of abuse of a child, killing, killing a child, that child is totally dependent upon others. Is that the way you regard yourself before God? Because you are. Without me, you can do zero, nothing. Or, now the Pharisee and the publican, the publican, tax collector, did not say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He said, God be merciful to me, the sinner. It's as if there's no one else in the world, and I see myself before God, and it is a very ugly picture. 
the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The prodigal son goes to a father who calls all heaven, as it were, to rejoice over that son who repents. That's kingdom of heaven. The little child is the one whose faith Jesus commends because that little child can appreciate what it is that God is his or her father. That's part of the kingdom of heaven. You have God the father as your father. The publican, God be merciful to me, the sinner. This one goes away justified, kingdom of heaven. This is amazing, folks. You know what not guilty means? Justification, you come to Christ, you believe in him, you rest in him. And all this burden of guilt that John Bunyan pictures as a burden on your back, it rolls off because it was rolled onto Christ. My sin, oh, the thought of this, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. And as glorious that is, that is, that's only part of it. It's the last day. And it is the day of judgment for all people. And that justification that came to you in history is publicly declared before the whole universe. This one is not guilty and is perfectly righteous because of Christ. Wow! And it comes for those who are poor in spirit. And theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is that your being attitude? Okay. Prodigal son, dependent child, publican. If that's your being attitude, then you are blessed. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what you are? We love to say, you know Christians are? They're the real grateful dead. <laughs> we died in Christ and we live out of thanks. If you're a true Christian, you're the poor rich. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven, you have everything. You have all in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it might be helpful to know that kingdom of heaven is a synonym for salvation. Kingdom of heaven is a synonym for grace. Kingdom of heaven is a symbol of all the benefits of the gospel. And not just about you and Jesus. It's about Jesus who's making a whole new world and you're privileged to be part of it. It's very interesting when Paul writes to the Colossians. He says, in Christ the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and you're filled up in him. You are made totally full in him. That's the kingdom of heaven. It's heaven itself given to you. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 21. Don't boast in men. All things are yours. Things present, things future. This world, the world to come, all are yours. You are Christ, and Christ is God. Selah. Stop and think about this, folks. Don't make this just some bit of information to put in a computer chip. This is the whole of the Christian life. Sila, stop 
and think about that. The being attitude is what? I'm part of the poor rich. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't read it now, but I will read an excerpt in a little bit. But on page 11 in your bulletins, you have Paul Tripp on grace. Uh, that was part of his Wednesday's word a few weeks ago. And what I want you to do when you're done, I'll give you an example a bit later, is when you've got time, I want you to read Paul Tripp on grace. But when you come to the word grace, put in kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. And I think you'll get the idea of what's in view. Let me give you three pictures of the first being attitude. Here's your pacemaker, okay? As, as it's a pacemaker for me. As John R. Stott, in his excellent commentary, the message of the Sermon on the Mount. This is how he describes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich. The feeble, not the mighty. To little children, humble enough to accept it. Not to soldiers who boast that they can obtain it by their own prowess. In our Lord's own day, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom who thought they were rich, so rich in merit that they thanked God for their attainments. And it wasn't the zealots who dreamed of establishing the kingdom by blood and sword, but publicans and prostitutes, the rejects of human society, who knew they were so poor they could offer nothing and achieve nothing. All they could do was cry to God for mercy, and he heard their cry. I added a selah after that. Stop and think about that. Let me ask you, is that your life? That, that's real Christianity, real, 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 real Christian counterculture. So poor, they can offer nothing and achieve nothing. All they can do is cry to God for mercy, and he hears their cry. Or from the very popular hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Is that you? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You're the poor rich. Or to quote my favorite pastor, a Baptist, a Calvinistic Baptist, no less, Charles Spurgeon, who sums it all up so well. The way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you, are you part of the poor rich? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the way you turn the world on its head and all of the values of whatever world system are the things that you turn on their head, you turn them inside out, and you make us realize that you don't esteem our riches in ourselves, you esteem
are saying, I am wretched and poor and miserable and naked and blind. Our Lord, we pray that we would see ourselves in that way, but do it looking to Christ so that we can say, Lord, thank you. You've made me blessed in my state of being poor in spirit, my being attitude, being poor in spirit, because, Lord, you promised that in Christ, mine is the kingdom of heaven. Make us the poor rich. Amen. Amen.